Today's story is from the Mahabharat. It's about Draupadi's birth and her swayamvar, featuring recipes for revenge served cold and an insanely difficult archery contest. Welcome to Stories from India. This is a podcast that will take you on a journey through the rich mythology, folklore and history of the Indian subcontinent. I am Narad Muni, the celestial storyteller and the original Time Lord. With my ability to travel through space and time, I can bring you fascinating stories from the past, the present and the future. from the epic tales of the mahabharat and ramayan to the folk tales of the panchatantra to stories of akbar birbal and tenali raman i have a story for every occasion the purpose of the stories is neither to pass judgment nor to indoctrinate my goal is only to share these stories with people who may not have heard them before and to make them more entertaining for those who have In this episode we are continuing the story of the Mahabharat. I'll give you a summary of the story so far in case you haven't heard previous Mahabharat episodes. The Mahabharat is one of the two major epics from India. The other one is the Ramayana which we have also covered on the show. The Mahabharat began with Bhishma, the crown prince of Hastinapur. Bhishma gave up his claim to the throne in exchange for a new stepmother because that's what made his dad happy that complicated matters for all the citizens of Hastinapur they lost out a crown prince and only got vague promises instead about who might rule them in the future a couple of blink and you'll miss them emperors later Dhritarashtra sat on the throne. He was blind and because of that people were constantly worried. For example, what if when signing orders of execution he put his own name on the wrong dotted line? Such a tragic ending would be on brand for the Hastinapur emperor considering all that had happened. to his predecessors and then who would rule the people who would impose unfair taxes and arbitrary laws on them all of these succession problems must have finally taught the hastinapur royal family a lesson because they overcompensated dhritarashtra had over 100 children but it wasn't his eldest duryodhan who was made crown prince as much as dhritarashtra wanted to that honor went to yudhishthir the nephew of dhritarashtra and the oldest of five sons of the previous emperor pandu you can imagine how that made duryodhan feel still trying to barbecue his cousins by burning their highly flammable palace was not a solution he should have pursued in my opinion 
unknown to Dhritarashtra and his sons, the Pandav brothers and their mother, Kunti, escaped and made it out alive. Instead of going back and confronting Duryodhan for his very cowardly attempt on their lives, they explored the countryside in disguise. Along the way, Bhim, the second oldest Pandav, got married and the new couple even had a child. Later, the Pandavs moved to another place where Bhim killed a local terrorist, Bakasur. That's the point we had reached in the last episode. Now, they had their next destination set on their road trip. And that destination was a Svayamvar. In case you're unfamiliar with the term, allow me to explain. A prospective bride picks her groom from a lineup of eligible bachelors and the two get married. No Mangani and Patpya, meaning no engagement, just a quick wedding. And the groom who gets chosen does not get a say in the decision and they can't weasel out of it. That's probably where law enforcement agencies around the world got the idea of using a lineup to pick the person who then ends up with a very harsh sentence. The kingdom of Panchal is precisely the location where the Swayamvar was happening. And that's where we are continuing the story. But not at the time that Kunti and the Pandavs were slowly making their way towards the place. We'll rewind the clock a bit to the birth of the lady whose Swayamvar it was. Ah, but don't be thinking that we are going back several years. As it happens, Draupadi wasn't born all that long ago. She was born fully grown up. But more on that in a bit. The scene is the royal throne room. King Drupad and Queen Prishati were talking to a couple of travelling rishis. Drupad was sitting on the throne. He definitely wasn't lying down on a couch. But for all practical purposes, he might as well have been in therapy. Because that is the way the conversation was going. One of the rishis, whose name was Upayaj, stroked his grey beard and began somberly. King Drupal, to summarize my psychoanalytic deconstruction, you have developed a hyperactive preoccupation, an ID fix, if you will, regarding your interpersonal discord with Dronacharya in light of his hostile takeover of half your kingdom. In your protracted state of vindictive rumination, the potent stimulus of perceived betrayal has activated retaliatory predispositions, ego defense mechanisms, and the ardent pursuit of justice as a compensatory mechanism for the perceived breach of trust. You are seeking closure through the orchestration of punitive actions against your transgressor. The second Rishi, who was named Yaja, nudged Drupad's secretary who was standing nearby. The Rishi whispered, What's Upayaj on about? 
What's the scoop on Dronacharya pilfering half of the kingdom? The secretary quickly whispered back that Yaja had to refer back to episode 195 on the Stories from India podcast. The TLDR though was that back when they were BFFs, Drupad had rather rashly promised half his future kingdom to Dronacharya. Later, Drupad found that he could not only not keep his promise, but that he couldn't even bear to part with a single cow. Dronacharya was so deeply offended that he went about the country training as many princes as he could, until he found the Pandavas best fit for the task. The Pandavas Gurudakshina, or tuition fees, was the task of conquering half of the kingdom of Panchal. They managed to do it easily enough. But then, how do you suppose Drupad was going to feel? Perfectly natural for him to seek revenge. Upayaj was continuing to ramble. You need to engage in a dialectical discourse to achieve a harmonious viewpoint between yourself and Dronacharya. But Drupad wasn't buying it. He plotted revenge for years and years. Even if I talk to him, he may say everything is okay and he may smile and shake hands and still hold on to another grudge. No, what I need is something permanent. I need a way to destroy him. The two rishis said that that was possible, but it needed a platinum tier service. Drupad would receive a son. Someone who would be instrumental in destroying Dronacharya. The king said that he was familiar with the concept. Seeing as his eldest daughter, Shikhandini, dreamt of nothing but revenge on Bhishma. Something about her previous life as Princess Amba, back in episode 91. The queen gently corrected her husband. Dear I thought we agreed. Shikhandi's pronouns are he and him. The rishis said they could get started right away. Could they all move to the royal yagya room? The secretary interjected to say that Shikhandi was performing yet another ritual there right now. But Drupad had no qualms about displacing Shikhandi to the spare yagya room drupad recognized that shikhandi had a fire in his belly about getting revenge on bhishma but that could wait his own need for revenge on dronacharya was the greater one in the king's judgment so the group moved to the yagya room right away and the rituals began a massive fire was lit up Upayaja and Yaja seemed to know exactly what they were doing and Drupad was all fired up but the queen not so much she drew the rishi's fire or ire by stepping away at the precise moment that they needed her the rishis had prepared the sacrificial kheer or porridge 
and the queen was supposed to drink it. But she wasn't around. Yaja got worried that the kheer wouldn't retain its power if it wasn't consumed immediately. So he did the next best thing, which was to toss the kheer from the frying pan into the fire. Why destroy the kheer, you may ask? Ah, but don't jump to conclusions. Mark the sequel. The kheer was not destroyed by the fire. Instead, right then, the fire grew into a massive size. And curiously, there was something in the fire. Two figures. The figures stepped out of the fire and greeted everyone. Drupad had been hoping for a son. But now, he had gotten both a son and a daughter. He resolved that his son, Drishtadyumna, was going to be his instrument of revenge against Dronacharya. But unknown to him, his daughter was going to play the more central role in this epic. They named her Krishna. But later, that changed to Draupadi and sometimes Panchali. You might think that getting fully grown adult children might scare the parents. Shouldn't they have panicked and worried that their children might be similar to the curious case of Benjamin Button? What if their children aged backwards? That might cause a few embarrassing stares at the king's and queen's clubhouse, especially at tea time. But this was not unusual at the time. If you recall, a couple of Mahabharat episodes ago, Bhim's son, Ghatotkach, had a very accelerated growth. But a more compelling example is that of your humble narrator himself. Many of you probably already heard that Brahma, the creator of the universe, is my dad. He has created many full-grown adults, including me and many of my siblings. So anyway, that's how Draupadi came to be. There were pros and cons to not having brought up the children. All the tantrums of the growing years were completely bypassed. But on the other hand, all the tantrums of the growing years were completely bypassed meaning the king and queen hadn't had a chance to bond with their children at all. Drupal had already planned his next moves. He told his son that he was going to be trained in all kinds of warfare. And Draupadi? She was going to get married to Arjun. Draupadi didn't know Arjun from Adam, but it didn't matter to her. If this Arjun guy did not prove worthy of her, there wasn't any chance of her marrying him. She found out more about this Pandav brother. And when she did, she seemed skeptical. Dad, let me get this straight. Arjun is Dronacharya's favorite student. He's the one who humiliated you by defeating your army and taking over half your kingdom. 
and handing that off to his teacher. And you want me to marry him? Yes, of course, Drupad said. But he didn't offer an explanation. And? Draupadi prompted. You're okay with that? There must be a catch here. Are you trying to get me to lure Arjun into a false sense of security and then poison him or something? If so, I'll have you know right now, I take all vows very seriously, including wedding vows. But, my dear daughter, I have a master plan. There will be a massive war at some point. It's bound to happen. I just feel how this epic has been trending so far. I'm willing to bet half my kingdom there'll be a war. You only have half a kingdom left, she pointed out. All the more reason to take my word seriously, Drupad retorted. Imagine how much more painful it will be to Dronacharya if he is destroyed by the brother-in-law of his favorite student. And if we are lucky, Arjun himself will fight against Dronacharya. Dronacharya will despair and break down. That is what I want. Draupadi shook her head. She didn't understand this line of thinking. But eventually, she came around to the idea of marrying Arjun, especially when she realized that this Arjun guy did seem to be quite a hit, especially with his legendary archery skills, which Draupadi happened to read about in the latest version of the Bow and Arrow magazine. She consented to the marriage, but before Drupad could even take the proposal to the Pandavas, there was some breaking news. Hot off the press, it was reported that the Pandavas had been killed in an accidental fire in their new palace. The news reporter interviewed the fire superintendent, who said that he had completely ruled out any kind of foul play. And hey, in completely unrelated news, he was quitting a job because uh, he had just um, won the lottery. Yes, that's what it was. He had won the lottery. It was definitely the lottery and not an incentive from anyone for being flexible with the truth about any accident investigation in the palace ruins. So that's how Draupadi and Drupad's hopes of her marriage with Arjun were ended. Only temporarily, because, as you listeners know, Arjun was alive and well. Drupad and Draupadi did not know that. Fast forward to the present. After much deliberation, Drupad decided that he'd better get some political advantage out of a swayamvar. As I explained before, this was an event where a bride could pick her groom out of the assembled guests. The chosen groom did not get a say. Some of the guests who attended such meetings felt it was a bit of a Russian roulette. However, most attendees would have been happy because the bride was usually a princess. So there was power and wealth that they could look forward to. 
even if the groom didn't particularly feel that they were made for each other. There was one group of folks who had reasonably consistent expectations from the Swayamvar. These were the scholars and the spiritual folks. Brainy chaps, don't you know? They came, they ate, they mingled, exchanged the latest spiritual ideas. They applauded when the princess picked her match. They took their goodie bags and went home. The princess always picked someone who was born and raised as a warrior, like her own family. As the Panda brothers, in disguise as scholars, walked into the Swayamvar arena, they noticed various bookkeepers offering punters a chance to make some money there. Duryodhan seemed to be the favourite. His close friend Karna was a close second, followed by Jarasandh, Shishupal and a few other miscellaneous kings here and there. No one was offering any kind of odds on a scholar. The youngest Pandavs, Nakul and Sardev, rather fancied Arjun or Bhim to actually win, if it was a skills-based contest. They asked one bookmaker for the odds, but all they got in return was laughter. A scholar? Jada time nahi waste karne ka. Aage chalo. The rude bookkeeper dismissed them. Drupad had spared no expense. In the worst case, this was going to be a massive PR boost for his kingdom. The entire Swayamvar arena was decked out in Panchal's colours. There was no shortage of food. There were live musicians all around in different areas of the arena for a full surround sound effect. When Draupadi entered, she arrived on an elephant, richly dressed in gold jewellery. I mean, Draupadi was wearing the rich gold jewellery. And come to think of it, the elephant was too. Drishtadyumna and Shikhandi, as the brothers of the bride, took on the task of explaining the contest. Everyone gathered around a curtained area in the centre of the arena. The brothers unveiled the curtain and explained what the contest was. This was an archery contest. There was a fish on a spinning wheel up on the ceiling. Sounds a little fishy to me, Duryodhan complained. Draupadi's brothers explained that to win, an archer would have to hit the eye of the fish. There were murmurings in the crowd. Holy mackerel! Are you mocking us? One prince shouted. No one could do this. Not even Arjun. And when Drishtadyumna added that the eye of the fish had to be hit without looking up, some of the princes threw their arms up in frustration. They would have walked out too if they hadn't caught a glimpse of the dessert menu, which was to be served after the marriage was concluded. Duryodhan told Karna, who was sitting beside him, that this 
was a fine kettle of fish he had gotten himself into. All that Duryodhana ever wanted was to get married to Draupadi. Was that too much to ask? Now that Hastinapur was his, why couldn't all these other kingdoms start revolving around what he wanted? Karna replied that he need not worry. It wasn't like shooting fish in a barrel, but Karna thought that he could still manage it. And then, if Draupadi came to pick him, he'd attempt a redirect to Duryodhan. After all, nothing required the contest winner to be the groom. Pishma had done it once and abducted three princesses at their swayamvar on behalf of someone else. So there was precedent, certainly. The contestants lined up and got ready. Outside, the bookkeepers were hastily adjusting their odds. The moment Dhrishtadyumna had said archery, Karna's favorability had shot up. But it was Duryodhan who stepped up to the bow first. He didn't get very far. And a few minutes later, he was explaining to Karna why. This bow stringing business is nonsense. Who makes bows that need stringing anyway? All my weapons manufacturers provide pre-strung bows. What a colossal waste of time to string your own bows. Jarasan tried. So did Shishapal. None of them got too far. Karna stepped up next. He expertly picked up the bow and began stringing it. There was a soft cough. Not you, Draupadi said. Karna didn't have time to even react. A couple of ushers, politely but firmly, ushered him away from the bow. Hey, why not him? Duryodhan protested. He's a bona fide king. Draupadi gave him a cold stare. Was this entitled brat thinking that he could teach her the rules now? At her own swayamvar? Other kings and princes tried. No one even came close. The queue was now empty and no one was even bothering to try. And people were getting restless. There were suggestions that the hosts should serve dessert without waiting. Alternatively, let everyone have a second shot. And Drupad seriously considered it. There was no other way but to keep the goodwill. He was still debating when a scholar came up. He didn't really ask for anyone's permission. He strode right up to the bow and began stringing it. Karna was getting highly strung too. He's actually doing it, he told Duryodhan. The way he's tying the string, such technique, excellent wrist movement, he's going to get it done. Relax, Karna, Duryodhan said. So maybe he knows how to string a bow. That's very different from being able to hit the eye of a fish. The scholar had the bow ready now. And he tested the tension in the string. It seemed 
perfect. Now, he stood right under the wheel. The fish was still spinning round and round. But Arjun was not looking at it directly. He was looking down and at a little puddle of water below, which somewhat reflected the spinning wheel above. The scholar slowed his breathing down and concentrated. This was no different than all those years ago, back at university, where his professor had asked him to hit the eye of a bird a mile away. Back then, the bird had been a fake one that was gently swaying back and forth in the wind. Here, the fish was moving in a circle. The scholar performed some quick mental trigonometric calculations until he was sure that he got it all right. By now, many of the princes were protesting. How was Draupadi okay with this? She had refused to let Karna try. But she was somehow okay with a scholar picking up a warrior's weapon? Now, the warriors didn't go about writing spiritual books, did they? But through all these protests, the scholar heard nothing and saw nothing. The only thing he saw was his target. The eye on the fish went round and round. At the crucial moment, he released the arrow. It went flying into the air. There was a collective gasp, as even the protesters stopped to observe as it went straight and hit the target exactly in the centre. There were some cheers and applause from the audience. Some of them were no doubt excited that now desserts could finally be served. But the loudest cheers came from the scholar's four brothers. Duryodhan thought about this. Five brothers? One of them an archer? Another built like a mountain? And two of them were twins? What are the odds? He thought. The Pandavas seem to have had exact parallels in these five scholars. Could it actually be Arjun? Karna blurted out. Nah, I saw their corpses myself, the crown prince of Hastinapur replied. How can he be sure? Karna asked. The corpses were burnt. Could you make a positive identification from that? Duryodhan admitted that they couldn't. Dental records, DNA matching, all those didn't exist yet. Besides, where's Kunti? She should be here if they really managed to escape somehow. Karna let it go. He was feeling deflated amongst other things. You would be too, if you thought you were the greatest archer in the world. And then suddenly, a complete nobody showed up and demonstrated superior skills. Draupadi, on the other hand, had already made her decision. Her garland went around the neck of the scholar. So what? 
if she couldn't have Arjun. This scholar was probably the better archer. There was the whole thing about him being a scholar and not a warrior. And there was still a babble of voices. Several princes still going on and on about how a scholar had been allowed to compete. Shut it! she screamed. And instantly, the babble died. Well, that's the way Swayamvars go. What the bride decides, the bride gets. And Draupadi's strong personality did make the order easier to swallow. So, my dear husband, my name is Draupadi. What's yours? She asked him. Arjun, he replied. Prince Arjun. Draupadi felt an intense excitement run through her body as she realized, yes, this was the Pandav prince, after all. But alive? How? She had a million questions that she wanted to ask. But those will have to wait until we are ready to pick up the Mahabharata again. We'll end it here this time. Previous Mahabharata episodes are linked in the show notes and on the site sfipodcast.com. Check them out. Especially check out episode 91 for Shikhandi slash Amba's story. There's another story, episode 195, that's relevant. It has the backstory about Dronacharya and King Drupad's disagreement. In the next episode, we'll do the story of Tipu Sultan. We'll see why this chap deserved to be called the Tiger of Mysore. Amongst other things, we'll see how he deeply invested in keeping his R&D division full of rocket scientists. Thank you all for the comments on social media and on Spotify's Q&A. I can't directly reply to the questions there, but I'll address them here on the show. Thank you for the wishes, Prasanna, Darsh, Anev, and Tal. Adnya, thank you for the heartwarming comment. Shalu, thank you as always for your thoughtful feedback. Darsh, Tipu Sultan's story is finally coming up next week. Bala, I appreciate your patience. Swar, thanks for the feedback. Dwarika's story is a very interesting one and something I'd love to cover soon. Deep enjoy? I'm flattered that you think so. Thanks for the feedback. Tal, I really wish I could indeed do more episodes than once a week. Much earlier in the show, I had done mini-stories and character of the week segments, midweek. Tal, and in fact all of you listeners, let me know if you'd be interested in something like that again. Maybe a small segment featuring a special historical place in India. I'm a bit doubtful of being able to create two full episodes every week, as I do still have my full-time job, which involves traveling the universe, fixing things here and there, telling my stories in, let's just say, other forums. If any of you want to collaborate, 
in stepping up the rate of these stories, do drop me an email or a DM and I'd love to explore what we can get done. If you have any other comments or suggestions or if there are particular stories that you'd like to hear, please do let me know by leaving a comment or a review on the site sfipodcast.com or reply to the questions on Spotify's Q&A. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to send me an email, it's storiesfromindiapodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get notified automatically of new episodes. A big thank you to each and every one of you for your continued support and your feedback. The music is from purpleplanet.com. That's purple-planet.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.